0: Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the the beauty of your creation that we've been enjoying, uh, this gorgeous fall, the beauty of the leaves, um, the rhythm of the seasons. It is good to remember that the earth is yours and everything in it. When the world we live in does seem to be strange, help us to understand some of this strangeness and how we can and should respond as Christians. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, uh, Chapter 8 is called Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. And pretty much this is about how those three, you know, big signposts in the Declaration of Independence have changed uh, due to the, the, the social uh, conditions that Truman has been historically analyzing and recounting, so the rise of expressive individualism, and we are all expressive individualists it 's endemic in Western society, and the psychologist psychologized self that should be our transforming unless the subject is rise, but never mind. Uh, is transforming the Western understanding of life and personhood, the meaning of happiness, and the concept of freedom. These chances have major implications for Orthodox Christians, and culturally conservative people. And we'll get to that last part um, in the in the discussion questions. Uh, any does anybody first of all is anybody. Yeah, I, I think I sufficiently grasped the chapter of that, but you know we are supposed to be, you know, reviewing and looking at this book together. Does anybody have anything to add to that? What you think the main points of this chapter are? Um, we'll move on. Modern life. So what is life anymore? Expressive individualism has led to a view of personhood, which requires a degree of self-consciousness. So if you're not self-conscious, then you're not a person. Unborn and even newborn infants and adults with advanced dementia do not have such self-consciousness and therefore lack true personhood. Whether to abort or euthanize them would involve a utilitarian calculation about the happiness of the caregivers. So he mentions utilitarianism without really explaining or describing it. The picture is of a very famous utilitarian – well, it came out before there were such things called memes. It's called the trolley problem and it's utterly contrived which is one of its problems so if you were at a switch for a trolley and a trolley was coming down the track and as you see in this version of it they're tied up on the track but somehow or another uh the trolley is going to go one way or the other and you control that one way it's going to kill one person and the other way is going to kill one two three four five persons so what what do you do? Do you kill the one or kill the five? How about if the one is your mother, okay, or your son? Now, that, well, I won't really go into the problem with this, but th- this points out that utilitarianism is about a calculation of how much happiness results from a from a moral action. And so, let me go ahead and just read. Uh, Definitional statement about utilitarianism. It helps us to understand some of what he's talking about in the chapter. The best action in utilitarianism, one that leads to the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest number of people. And in this case, if you were making a strictly utilitarian decision, you would throw the switch and have it kill the one person, because that would be the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest amount of people. An action is right insofar as it promotes happiness and that the great and the greatest happiness of the greatest number should be the guiding principle of conduct. In utilitarian ethics, happiness is defined as the presence of pleasure and the absence of pain. In this right around this part in the book, Truman mentions a, an ethicist by the name of Peter Singer, which, if you've ever taken an ethics class, is a well-known and, and uh, depending on your point of view, either uh, you know, loved or despised. Uh, he is currently the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. He's a non-observant Jew and an atheist. He is famous or infamous as an – he's probably the most famous utilitarian in the world right now. So he's famous or infamous as an animal rights advocate and one of the founders of the animal liberation movement. So people who raid chicken houses and let them go. And for arguing for legitimacy of abortion through, throughout pregnancy and even emphasize infanticide. He's very famous for a quote I'm going to read. So in Practical Ethics, his book, he writes, Human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. So this is exactly what, what uh, Truman is saying. He says, but animals are self-aware and therefore, quote, singer quote, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. And then from a book he co-authored with Helga Cuse, whom I don't know who that is, Uh, should the baby live – Quote, it does not seem wise to add to the burden on limited resources by increasing the number of severely disabled children. So he actually believes not only in aborting but uh, killing after birth, uh, Down syndrome children, people with spina bifida. These are two disabilities he mentions in the book. So also in the book, uh, he and his co-author suggested that, quote, a period of 28 days after birth might be allowed before an infant is accepted as having the same right to live as others. So that's utilitarianism in a nutshell. Now, not all utilitarians are going to go that far, but again, he's at Princeton, well-known ethicist and extremely influential and uh, I think Singer is right that this is the product and outcome, I mean uh, Truman is right, it's a product and outcome of the way we understand the self now with expressive individualism and the psycholo- psychologization of the self if your personal happiness is first and foremost uh, everything Anybody have any questions? Uh, A little more brief on ethics just to – as opposed – most of us are going to be deontologists when it comes to – that's just a big word. That means you, you should do something because you ought to do it and you ought not to do something because you ought not to do it because God said so. We are also command theory ethicists, subset of deontology. So in utilitarianism, the end justifies the means, because it doesn't matter what you do. All that matters is the outcome, which is the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest number of people. In deontology, the ends never justify the means. Um, The Book of Common Prayer, or at least the prayer of confession for daily morning prayer would reflect deontological ethics because we confess that we have offended against your holy laws and have left undone those things which we ought to have done and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. So just just so you know, that's a command theory version of deontological ethics. And just because I can, I threw in the fact that there's a third well, there's actually more. A third theory, and that's virtue ethics, where a virtuous act is something that a virtuous character does. And this is, Aristotle is, is, is the primary proponent of this from ancient times. And there's something to be said for virtue ethics. It, 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 there are issues with it too, but I think it can be successfully combined nice with question. command theory ethics. Yeah. <clears throat> and just so you know, I'm not an ethicist, so if this is a difficult ethical question, I'm...
1: So, just to observation, I wasn't, this was not what I was going to ask, but virtue ethics doesn't seem to necessarily contradict any of the other forms of utilitarianism or deontology, just... No, well, I don't think about that more.
0: the focus in virtue ethics is is on the individual making the decision. A virtuous and I am vastly oversimplifying.
1: Supposing what a virtuous person is? That's well, yes. So you still have to go back to one or the other, and it doesn't necessarily contradict the Right. One. But so we're talking about pure moral or law categories here. We are all utilitarianists. We all hold to some form of utilitarianism when we're making everyday life choices, though. Um, if, if I have, <clears throat> if I'm trying to think of a symbol like if I have ice cream and I can take it to one person or take it to five people, I'm going to choose to take it to five people because that's, and I can't take it to both. But that's not a moral category. Right. That's just an, an issue of, of where can I spread the most love.
0: Well, we are, we're talking about a, a, Specific definitional view of ethics that's called utilitarianism. It goes, well, it goes back farther than that, but uh, Jeremy Bentham was pretty much the founder of modern utilitarianism. So um, um, and general. Kant was the founder of modern deontological ethics. However, deontological ethics is you just do it because there's a law. Now, if the law comes from God, then that's command theory ethics. So I mean, yeah, we all make utilitarian calculations, but you know, if it's moral, well, you know, I could say, well, if I rob this bank, you know, and and you know, and and mainly the people who have money here, you know, like rich people and they don't need it in, and I rob from the rich and I give it to the poor, then utilitarianism would say, Well, that's okay. Robinhood, baby. But but it's not. It's wrong because God said, among other things, "Don't rob banks." You know, it comes under the <laughs> heading, you know, "Thou shalt not steal." So you're right. A lot of times we make utilitarian calculations, but not with respect to morals or God's command. I, yeah. I
2: will, okay. I, mean, I, I'm you know this, I was afraid they, of this, people, by the way. I was, people. <laughs> I mean, them, though. They, they, they would have their ways of explaining in their Utilitarian framework, why we don't rob banks and things like that? Because of the harm it does to. He
0: would, but he'd be wrong. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> Just, he
2: might be, but sometimes it's hard to show them they're right. wrong. Well, you know, the, <laughs> most, the
0: most fascinating part of uh, about, the most fascinating fact about Jeremy Bentham is his body has been stuffed and preserved, and I forget at which, uh, Cambridge or Oxford. Uh, one of the colleges there, and he's kept in a glass case. I'm not making this up. You can can look that up. Um, You can say hi to Jeremy, and apparently there's, you know, freshman rituals about it or something like that. But, uh, again, I would say the Book of Common Prayer practices uh, a command theory version of deontological ethics. Um, Um... Modern liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as Jefferson said, Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In many Western democracies, traditional freedoms of religion and speech, once thought foundation and inviolable, are now attacked as problematic and harmful. Such attacks on... And we'll get more into that in uh, a couple of later slides. Such attacks on traditional freedoms are rooted in the rise of expressive individual and the psychologized self that Dr. Truman has traced. And one of the reasons is that, that, you know, words... Now, it's not true, but we all... well. Those of us of at least a certain age remember the, the saying, the little playground ditty, sticks and stones will hurt my bones, but words can never hurt me. Well, we, we know that that's not really completely true, but the point is uh, is that, that speech should be protected – But as a matter of fact, there are even legally, before all this woke stuff, the the legal definition of things like fighting words. If what you're saying is deliberately attempting to provoke violence and it can be proved you mean it, well, that's not right. And you can't yell, famous example, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. You can't play havoc or make mischief with your speech. But other than that, speech should be protected. Um, But now, um, because... We have a utilitarian ethic, and if somebody feels like they're oppressed by your speech, they aren't happy, and so your speech must be silenced, particularly if it's religious speech. And we'll talk a little bit about that right now.
3: So do you think our overriding modern ethic is utilitarian? Yes. Then how does the LGBTQ plus community get such... uh, I don't know what the word is. They're certainly not the greatest number.
0: Oh, you mean how do they have such influence? Well, Truman's influence argument...
3: Influence as we're all very, very concerned about what they, they can say.
0: Well, it depends on what you mean, but I'm, not, I'm, I'm concerned with their eternal salvation.
3: I'm not saying we as in we in this room, but our culture... If, if true utilitarianism is the greatest happiness for the greatest number, then... I don't see how we could argue that the happiness of the LGBTQ+, even if you include their sort of <coughs> lobby and fans, would be, like, would be the greatest number.
0: Uh, Johnny, did you want to say something to that before I... Uh,
3: the, the starting point of this idea... It's like this sad Well, one of the, well, the other... I think I mentioned this before, actually. One of the... who developed what we call our utilitarianism is John Stuart Mill right the other thing aside from the greatest greatest good for the greatest number of people sort of the corollary to that is that everyone should be allowed to do whatever they like so long as it doesn't harm anyone else so that's where this
0: and that is one of the arguments of course that they particularly with same sex marriage is what does my marriage if I'm a man what does my marriage what does it hurt you well, it destroy society. I'm skipping over a few steps, but it it completely undermines the foundation of human civilization. So, yeah, go ahead.
2: Um, so
0: I haven't an answered next question to, to yet.
2: Answer, I'm going to try to answer your question like a utilitarian might. Like what? So uh, they would. People like Bentham. Ed Mill, Bentham did this more than Mill from what I can remember, it's been a long time since I've been in this literature, but they developed what they called a hedonic calculus and uh, and hedonic just coming from the word hedonism meaning meaning pleasure, and so one of the ways they would sort of calculate the value of a particular action or a principle that the action was based upon is not totally, they, they wouldn't weight the variables, like say like you have number of people. That might be one variable in your calculus, in your equation. But um, you have you know another variable, independent of that, um, that you could weight uh, to some degree, and that would be sort of the how much pleasure this could be assigned to this particular variable. So to use Micah's ice cream example, he said, well, I would clearly give the ice cream to five people versus the one person, but that, That's only true on one weighting of the variables in the calculus because you could have another scenario where let's say that the one person just loves ice cream so much it's gonna really fulfill their life, you could imagine, but the five people, they wouldn't appreciate it very much at all, maybe just a little bit. And so in that case, you would give, as a utilitarian, you would give it to the one person and not the five. Okay. Um, so it might be, the way that I hear, I, if, if I'm trying to argue the LGBTQ platform is utilitarian, I'm probably going to say something like, we often hear it, like, well listen, these people are killing themselves. They're li- they, they can't get out of bed because of deep depression because of how they're treated by society. So yes, they're fewer in number, but the amount of displeasure that they experience because of right. our anti-LGBTQ, whatever, you know, homophobia in our society. Well, that far outweighs whatever pleasure the rest of us, you know, you all get, whatever. Um, and so we should be uh, showing deference to that or something like that.
0: I think that's true. Uh, Truman doesn't actually go into it, uh, but I'll add what I think he would add, that plus this, is that you would say, well, since we're all expressive individualists now, we all understand, you know, the the uh, utilitarian negativism of hurt feelings. Um, but then you add to that the, the supposed oppression of uh, so-called gay and transgender individuals. There, There's a, um, it, it goes around constantly, and it's been proven not true, that uh, high numbers of uh, transgender, well, youth and others, uh, you, you know, are being murdered, but because they're transgender, and it, that, it just isn't true. It's just something that's said. Um, I'm sure there's some people who are brutalized, and you shouldn't brutalize anybody, but... Okay, well, we can still talk about ethics, um, but let's finish, and if you want to come back to that, uh, but seriously. Um, oh, and, and by the way, that First of all, that, that one reason why I'm not a utilitarian is, first of all, what he said, the impossibility of actually calculating happiness. It's not a quantity. Um, the second thing is, is the definition of happiness, which is pleasure versus pain. And the third thing, which is related to the first thing, is the fly in the ointment, is, is the law of unintended consequences. You, you might think this is going to work out for happiness, but it doesn't. It's... Just so you know, Law of Unintended consequences, actually it came first, but it's sort of corollary of Murphy's Law. If something can go wrong, it will go wrong at the worst possible time in the worst possible way. So, and human beings never, when they're trying to, to gerrymander society and experiment, they always get it wrong. We always get it wrong. As you can see, I have a very low anthropology. Not tolerance, but equality. Um, what those who identify as LGBTQ plus demand is not tolerance. <coughs> tolerance, at first, I, I noticed a, a subtle shift in this because for years, decade, two decades ago, the first thing that was going on was just a redefinition of tolerance. And then they realized, well, we'll just say what we do doing is not tolerance, but equality, because tolerance, particularly in certain sectors, I, I would say the secular progressivism, the extreme left, their view of tolerance is, is actually anti-tolerant. But tolerance, they're correct about this, implies that you still disapprove of someone's behavior, but you're not simply going to sanction them or, or do anything about it. Um, But that's not enough. As uh, Truman has said, what they want is recognition, and recognition demands equality. Uh, And and actually, he doesn't discuss this, so I decided not to throw in an extra slide. What they really want is what's called equity now. Um, I should have should have saved the meme. Uh, if, you, if you, Equity is the idea that some people start out with a deficit, so you have to give them more so that they're lifted up to your level. Um, that's called equity, not in the financial sense. Um, equality, which requires recognition that tolerance simply does not provide that recognition—not simply that, yeah, I see who you are and who you say you are—but I recognize that your self-identity is legitimate as mine or anybody else's. So, if you're a man that says he's a woman, I I recognize that that you are what you say you are. Um, in a world in which the in a world in which the psych, psychologized view of self-dominant of self dominates. And people identify as their sexual preference and acts, um, expressing negative views of, for example, homosexual behavior, would be taken as a form of oppression. So, um, I'm trying to remember. It probably is in the book, but I was reading some other resources too. Uh, yeah, he does right at the end. Uh, the 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 old. So uh, hate the sin, but love the sinner, which, you know, you can do that if you're Jesus, everybody else should just, you know, hate your own sin and, but love everybody else. But anyway... <laughs> You, you can't do that in principle now, because people, when you identify as your sexual behavior, like I'm, I, if, if I said I'm gay, I'm not. Just so you know, this is just an example. Kids, um, don't try this at home. If I say I'm gay, I, I'm saying I define myself by certain sexual genital acts. You, you know, which is I, I, I haven't liked using the word gay since it came out. I'm that old. Um, I don't identify as a heterosexual. I do not identify how I take my sexuality as. Um, if, if we're categorizing people, it, it's handy to say, okay, I, I think that heterosexuality is the only valid heterosexuality. That must have been me. Um, Anyway, where was I? That's why we don't have phones on um, any anyway, any questions Oh the book um, I have not read this book. I read a few excerpts of it. I looked up the guy uh, not really familiar with the author uh but there's a it's it's a fairly popular book. It's not over. Getting beyond – by the way, this is the Walmart audio version for those of you who have difficulty reading small print. Uh, it's not over getting the, – the picture is. it. Getting beyond tolerance, defeating homophobia, and winning true equality. Uh, homophobia is one of those made-up words which just annoys me. Um, both because it's not really a word. I mean, it's, it's a ne- neologism, so it's in the dictionary. But it, it literally means, it, it, it should the world last a thousand years, and that's still word still around, linguists are going to be scratching their head about the etymology. What this word? Fear of self. What does that mean? Or fear of the same. And the same thing with transphobia. That, I, that must be fear of crossing bridges or something. You know, fear of a cross. It's,
3: it's mixing roots, too, so it's even worse. What? It's mixing roots, too, so it's
0: even worse. Okay. And, and, and by homophobia, they don't mean you're afraid of them. They mean you hate them. So anyway, I'm sorry. And that's the thing. Of course, Orwell knew this when he wrote 1984. If you can control the language, you can control people's minds. Um, Truman doesn't go into that a lot, but this – a lot of what's happening. The problem with free speech, it's a problem. Other than those – there are examples that even in the United States, you you cannot – say certain things. You cannot, I forget which Supreme Court justice made the example, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater um, if there is no fire. Uh, your your intent is not to help, it's to make mischief and cause havoc. And you know it will succeed, therefore it's, it's not allowed. Um, so working from the thought of German neo-Marxist Herbert Marcuse, which you'll thank me for not Spending any time on him, um, he was a he was a German neo-Marxist. He's like one, one of the one of the originators of so-called critical theory. He's from the Frankfurt School of oh, I forget what the full name was, but they were a bunch of neo marxist uh, analysts, sociologists, et cetera, et cetera. Started in Weimar Germany, um, they slapped themselves silly, metaphorically speaking, because they didn't see Nazism coming. And Marcuse was wondering, why is it that people have such false consciousness? That's what he called it when people don't go along with revolutionary aims. They have false consciousness. It's not that they just don't agree with you and don't want what you want. It's they have false consciousness. Um... So following the thought of Herbert Marcuse, who – somebody help me. He ended up at Harvard or Yale anyway, like so many other – so he was very influential in the United States too – New style progressives argue that freedom of speech is really a means of allowing bigotry and hatred to be expressed with impunity and treated as legitimate viewpoints. And therefore, Marcuse would have argued then that you can't tolerate intolerance. Not just behavior, but speech. We have to stop the false consciousness right at the input, and the input seems to be I'm simplifying some and, of course, being pejorative towards Marcuse. But basically any sort of narrative that disagreed with Marcuse, that was, you know, intolerant and that would have to be suppressed and censored. Uh, A neo-Marxist view of reality, anything like that, because that develops false consciousness in people. Uh, A further development along these lines, and I think – I think uh, Truman did this because of course he is an academic and he is an historian, so he is interested in this because it actually seemed like a dangling modifier. Um. Uh, it's, it wasn't totally unrelated to everything else in the chapter in the book, but further development along these lines is the attempt in higher ed curricu- higher educational curriculum colleges and uh, even high schools to replace or even abolish the traditional cultural canon of Western civilization because, of course, it's nothing but the writings and music of dead white guys. Okay, you've probably heard that expression before. Now, of course, this institution, Highland Land School, exists to, as as their slogan says, save Western civilization one student at a time. I think this is a noble vision and, a, and a, a worthwhile work because there are lots of things. We can argue about Christendom later if you want to, but there are just lots of things, lots of truth, beauty, and goodness in, Western, in the history of Western civilization that are worth preserving. So that's my sermon for the day for that. But now... Um, and th- this is not something that Truman made up. So I was just looking for some sort of illustration, and I thought, whoa, well, there it is right there. It's not about free speech. It's about bigots trying to normalize hate. So if you disagree with a man who says he's a woman and says, and you say, well, no, you're not. You know, you're 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 biologically a male, and you will remain that no matter what. Well, that's hate speech. Uh, that's bigotry, and that is speech that must be suppressed. And in some places, uh, Canada, in some provinces, um, you can be arrested for that, and people have been. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't go back, and uh, I can remember some of the details, but I can't remember the specifics, so I'll just leave it at that. But there are cases in certain Western countries where people have been. Uh, Oh, there was—now, she was found not guilty, but there was a lady in Finland who uh, uh, was arrested and tried for basically saying homosexuality was a sin. So this is real, and of course it, it does not bode well for the future, as Truman was wont to say.